Grab your Bible, trust you got it this morning, to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter number 13. 2 Chronicles, chapter 13. Everybody have a good Christmas, by the way. Amen. Amen. Trust you did. Prayed that you would. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank or uh, to welcome any and all visitors this morning. Thank you for coming and being with us today. Hope you feel at home and uh, feel the presence of God above all. Uh, we're going to jump into this this morning. I want to read verse number 12, and then I'll kind of we'll pray and I'll give you a little bit of background for this. Okay, Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 12. Behold, God is with us at our head, and His priests with their battle uh, with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. In other words, you can't win. If you fight against God, you just can't win. How many of you remember the song uh, back in around 1966? Of course, I, I, did, I don't remember that, but I, I've heard you know, on the oldies stations and stuff, uh, a song called I Fought the Law and the Law Won, right? Um, uh, the title of my message this morning is I Fought the Lord and the Lord Won. Okay, so let's pray this morning. Father, we turn our attention to your word. I give you my heart, my mouth, that you might speak through, touch our hearts today through your word. Be glorified, God. Let it do something to us. Let it produce fruit in us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. Um, okay, so basically what, what's going on here, let me give you a paint a picture in the background. Uh, the kingdom of Israel had been divided. This is right after Solomon's rule, and he had made a great big boo-boo, which by the way, uh, if you're ever looking for just a good place in the scripture to read, read 1 Kings... 2 Kings, you know, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You will not find a uh, a, a mystery novel or a war battle novel or a love novel anywhere in Barnes and Noble any more interesting than the reading in through there. I'm not going to go into all the details because it's a big story. But the bottom line is Solomon made a big goof, and because of his goof and his sin against God, God divided the entire kingdom of Israel. Okay, there were originally twelve tribes. Um, and God divided them, Judah kind of broke off and became their own kingdom. So we read from there where you've got the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. All still the same group of people, but they just had a, a split in the country. So Israel has a king whose name is Jeroboam, and Judah has a king whose name is Abijah. There's a bunch of A names in here, and so I've got to make sure I get the right one. Abijah, that's right. Uh, and so they're not getting along very well. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit for the sake of time, but you go back and read it. They're not getting along very well, and so they're going to have a war. They're coming together at battle. The, king, the, uh, the nation of Israel came with a few extra people. They were a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. I've lost my spot. Oh, no wonder I'm on the wrong page. Uh, Israel brought about uh, 800,000 soldiers. And Judah brought about 400,000 soldiers. So literally, it was two to one. And we find when you read on through there that Israel was really not on the right track with God. Okay, Judah was more on the right track, which is the smaller nation. And so as they come together in battle, Abijah stands up and Abijah, the king of Judah, basically gives the warning to the king of Israel, Jeroboam. And that brings us to where we we're at here. The warning that Abijah, who has only 400,000 soldiers, he warns the king who has 800,000 soldiers, and this is basically what he warns him. Um, if you, let's, let's go back up just a little bit. Verse 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him. 
We have priests ministering to us who are the sons of Aaron and the Levites for their service, meaning Israel had kind of appointed priests that weren't supposed to be priests. Okay? Uh, they offered to the Lord every morning and every evening burning, burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices, set out the showbread on the table of pure gold, and care for the golden lampstand uh, that its lamps may burn uh, every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. So in, in short, basically what he's saying is, you've assigned priests that aren't even supposed to be priests, and they're kind of doing church their own way. They're not even doing everything the way God had laid it out to be done in the temple. Our priests are. Bottom line, split the line in the middle. Abijah says, we're doing things God's way, you're not. And that was a true statement. And so he gives further warning. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to call the battle, the, excuse me, to sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Bottom line is, you just can't fight God and win. Now Jeroboam ignores the warning. Jeroboam thinks he can still win. He still thinks that he's on the right side, so he just marches into battle, and you find, if we read a little further, Jeroboam verse thirteen. Jeroboam had set an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. When Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front and behind them, and they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout, and when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam. Who defeated Jeroboam? God defeated Jeroboam uh, and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them with great force, so there fell slain of Israel eight or 500,000 chosen men. How many did Israel start with? I kind of gave it away there in my question. 800,000. So literally more than half of Israel's great big army was reduced. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers." Jeroboam found himself in a place where he was fighting against God. Jeroboam was high and mighty. He was full of pride. He was Solomon's son. And he decided he was, gonna, he was going to do things his way. Can anybody besides myself testify in this place this morning that there's been times in your life that you decided to do things your way? Well, it didn't work out for Jeroboam, and it didn't work out for me, so I'm assuming it didn't work out very good for you either. Amen? If we fight against the law, well, the Lord, the whole purpose of that song, by the way, just is funny. I mean, the purpose of that song, I fought the law, and the law won. You know, I mean, um, I needed money because I had none, and uh, robbing people with a six gun. Now I'm breaking rocks in the hot sun, if you've ever listened to the song. Bottom line was, the law was just too big for him to handle, and the law beat him. Why? Because the whole point of the song is that, you know, the law is bigger than any individual, right? There's more re- the law has more resources. It has police officers and firefighters and, uh, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, but the law just has more resources, and so one individual is no match. And so ultimately what Jeroboam and every human being who has ever lived discovers right off the bat is that God is far more powerful than we are. Yet we seem to be so high and mighty and think so much of ourselves that we find ourselves fighting against Him. Not only before we're saved, we'll talk about this a little bit, not to get ahead of myself, but I mean, you can expect unbelievers to fight against God. I mean, all of us have found ourselves 
fighting against God while we were unbelievers, meaning we didn't really want to surrender our life to Him. We wanted to live life our own way, and we liked our sin, and uh, you know, so we didn't want to surrender to God. Therefore, we, our whole life was wrapped up in fighting against God. God is drawing us, because that's what God does. God loves people, and He wants to save people. So God is constantly drawing the sinner, but the sinner is constantly repelling or fighting against God. And so all of us here this morning, they're saved. There come a point where we realize, I can no longer nor do I want to any longer fight against God. And we surrender to Him, and we accept His grace, and it's not, it's not even like God wins, we all win. How about that? You know what I mean? We fight against God, and we finally surrender, and God wins. We actually all win, because He gets us back, and we get freedom, deliverance, salvation. We get all the goods how many, of you, how many of you have ever seen two men fight and then when the fight was over and the stronger guy won, he gave the guy he just beat everything that he had? That never happens, does it? We're fighting over this, we're fighting over that, and then when I'm going to beat you down, it's like, well, here, take my house, you have access to my house, my car, everything I've got yours. That never happens in the natural. That's exactly what happened in the spiritual. God beat us and then he gave us everything, gave us access to everything that he owns. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, it's bigger than we are. God is bigger. His resources are far, far greater than we are. I want you to turn with me. You, don't, you can turn. We won't be back to Second Chronicles. I started to say we would. Go to Acts chapter 5, first of all. And then also, hold your finger there and go to Exodus chapter number 14. So I've got you going two ways here. Acts chapter 5, Exodus chapter 14. Let's look at the, basically, only two options here, and we'll see the benefit of both. Acts chapter 5, if you go down along lines, uh, verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For behold, these days Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men... About 400 joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, or the tax, you might say, and, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, and the present case we're talking about here, by the way, is uh, the apostles. Okay, The apostles uh, had been out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and great things were happening. People were being saved. Uh, people were being healed. I mean, literally, there was such a revival taking place. The gospel of Jesus Christ was doing such a work in, in that place that uh, all kinds of people were getting healed, even to the point where the Bible says uh, when Peter would walk down the road through the day, as his shadow would pass over people who were sick, even P Peter's shadow was, was healing people. I mean, that's the type of move, that's the type of, uh, move of God that was taking place. You would think anybody would embrace that. 
Who would fight against that? I mean, if people that you've seen their entire life are crippled and now they're walking around healed, right? Who would find themselves fighting against that? But there's always somebody, pride, we're just prideful human beings, and we're always going to fight against God. So it was an obvious act of God, yet there's people, and the religious people at that, who were finding themselves fighting against this. They, they brought, so they arrested the, the apostles. They bring them in. They say, we told you guys not to be preaching about this Jesus anymore. And they're wanting to kill them. The, the, the apostles say, look, Here's the, here's, the line, here's the bottom line. Uh, we've got to obey God rather than man. What the apostles had decided was this. I would rather fight against people than to fight against God. Amen? How many of you know that from now on, the rest of our life, we are always going to be fighting against people? Those unbelievers that want to silence the gospel and those believers who want to silence it at least not the way that it, they like it. There's always going to be people we're fighting against. And that, that's, I wish I, we can't get away from that. I wish we could. I get sick of fighting against people. Do you? But as long as we're on God's side, right, then we're always guaranteed that victory. We just don't want to find ourselves in the place where we're fighting against God. And that's what the apostles determined in their mind. Look, you can behead us. You can beat us. And that's actually what they did. They beat them. And later they were like, they leave there rejoicing that they had gotten beaten. You know why? Because they weren't fighting against God. They knew God was on their side, so they were willing to take the beating. So they basically said, look, we're not going to fight against God. We're going to continue to preach the gospel because that's what he told us to do. And so these guys were so mad, the religious guys so mad, they were wanting to kill these apostles to get the gospel stopped. And that's when this man, Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, steps up and he says, look guys, let's just think about this thing. And he brings up two different cases in in history. He said, you guys remember so-and-so, and and you remember so-and-so. Both of these guys raised up this big rebellion, and everybody was all worked up and upset, and it, it it just fizzled out. You know why those two men, their cause fizzled out? Because it wasn't of God. And so it just fizzled out. They, they arrested these guys, their, their followers all left, and it just went to nothing. And so what he's saying is this. These, apostles, these guys who are out there preaching about Jesus, don't kill them. If you kill them, you're going to have this big uproar for one thing. Let them do their thing. And if, it's, if this thing that they're talking about, this Jesus, is not of God, then it'll just fizzle out like all of these other things fizzled out. But if it does happen to be from God, this guy had a little bit of reason. If if what they're saying is of God, you don't want to find yourself fighting against God. Did I read down that far? I don't think I did. Um, Let's read it. Oh, I lost my spot. Was I in Acts? Yes. Thank you, thank you. So in the present case, in this present case, speaking of the apostles preaching about Jesus, in this present case, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing or fighting against God. So they took his advice. Smart, right? It's good counsel. You don't want to find what Gamaliel is saying. We don't know much about Gamaliel other than this, and he had a little bit of common sense. must have had something of of the Spirit of God within him. He said, common sense says we just don't want to find ourselves with boxing gloves on toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with God Almighty. Let's let, because we can't beat him. We can't defeat him. And so all the people said that, that sounds reasonable. And so the disciples 
were, were set free. They were beaten first, but they were set free. Okay? So then we go to Exodus chapter number 14. You, you know this story well. Uh, God has just delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. All the plagues, the flies, the locusts, the water turning to blood, all of these plagues. And so now Israel is set free from Egypt and they're heading to the, the promised land that God had given to them. But you remember they come to a little, uh, the, the little problem. They come to a little stumbling block. And that stumbling block was called the Red Sea. Okay, So this multitude of people and a, and a humongous body of water that was uncrossable in front of them. And it just so happened at that point that Pharaoh decided, why did I let these people go? I, sh- I shouldn't have let... I mean, Israel had served Egypt as slaves for 400 years. I mean, king after king, Pharaoh after Pharaoh had ruled these people. And now this Pharaoh decides, uh, I have failed. Every Pharaoh before me kept these people and I've lost them. And we find that the reason why Pharaoh had such a hard time keeping the Israelites is because he was fighting against God, right? Pharaoh had the attitude, when Moses walked in and told Pharaoh, uh, Look, God has sent me to tell you that you've got to let my people go. You've got to set the Israelites free. And Pharaoh says, he makes the bold statement, who is, who is God that I should listen to him? Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the face of the earth. What makes you think I should obey God? And with that one statement, he put himself in a fighting position against God Almighty. And God don't, don't fight fair. <laughs> God don't have to fight fair. He's God. God has all resources. God said, the earth is mine and everything in it is mine. So if you can create your universe, we'll fight. Otherwise, I'm using all my resources. What have you got? So Pharaoh goes up against God with nothing. And so God brings the plagues, he brings the blood, he ultimately, you know the story about the blood over the doorpost, and ultimately kills the firstborn of every sing- firstborn son of every single Egyptian, including Pharaoh. The most powerful man on the planet could not defend his, his son against God Almighty. He was fighting against God and it did not work out too well. And so, as he lets the children of Israel go... Then later he, he gets to thinking, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. I, I should have held on a little bit longer. What is it about us when we realize that God's beat us, there's still something in us? The next time, you know, when we finally surrender to God and quit fighting Him in this circumstance, and then the next time God says, I want you to do this, right? I mean, we, we want to fight Him again. And so Pharaoh does that. He's like, so he goes, I'm going to go get these Israelites and bring them back. So here's the Israelites, the Red Sea in front of them, they can't go forward. Uh, the uh, the uh, Pharaoh's armies, the Egyptian armies behind them, they can't go backward. Same situation in the last story we read, remember? With, with Abijah. Uh, Jeroboam brought his armies in front, and they brought an ambush behind, meaning they were literally surrounded by the enemy. But who was it, if you remember, was it that was, that was fighting for Abijah and the, and the nation of Judah? God fought for them. And so same situation here. The, the Egyptian armies are coming behind them. You know the story. God speaks through Moses, and Moses speaks to the people these words. Chapter number 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. King James says, Stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He, who? He, God, will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, 
you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You don't have to fear these Egyptians. In fact, you don't have to fight them because God is going to fight for you. Okay? So Jesus made a very bold statement while he was on this earth. And that bold statement was this. If you are not for me, you are against me. That's pretty cut and dried, plain and simple. You don't have to have a doctorate in theology to figure out what that means. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either gathering in souls and, and working for me or you're scattering abroad. Okay? You're fighting with me or you're fighting against me. So God makes an offer to every person. We see it. In, I mean, we, we saw uh, the two extremes here. We saw the two hands here. In one hand... Gamaliel says, we don't want to find ourselves fighting against God. We won't win. But on the other hand, with the Israelites, we find a situation where God says, I will fight for you, and they did win. God will either fight for us or He will fight against us. But all that is determined by whether or not you and I decide to fight with Him or to fight against Him. And there's no, there's no in-between. I mean, we can't take a coward's position and say, well, I'm, I'm not really... I'm not really fighting for God. I'm not really doing you know, what God wants me to do, but I'm not doing anything against Him. Yeah, you are, right? To, to not fight with God, to not surrender to God, to not accept Jesus Christ is to completely reject God and fight against Him altogether. Amen? Amen. If, you don't, if you're not for me, you're against me. So every one of us, and we've all, we've all admitted here this morning that we found ourselves in positions where we find ourselves fighting against God and it didn't work out too well. And one of the reasons I think about it for just a second, what makes God such a good fighter other than the fact he don't fight fair and um, he has all resources at his hands, but God is very patient. I mean, the best fighters are a patient, patient fighters. You take, you take two men who are going at a fist fight and, and there's a guy in there, he's just swinging, 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 swinging all over the place and he, you know, he wears himself out and he's, he's wasting energy. But the best fighters, right? Just be patient. While this guy's uh, flanging around and doing all this stuff, you know, good fighter just is patient. When he sees his opportunity, boom, he delivers his blow. That's the way God is. God is very patient. We wear ourselves out fighting against God. And God says, ain't that cute? They think they can beat me. <laughs> God's patient. He just waits. His grace and his mercy is beyond anything you and I can comprehend. And he's just patient. He waits. And then when the moment's right... He knocks us to our knees. Amen? It's a painful experience when God deals us a blow. We deserve it. I mean, if you pick a fight with somebody and they... Uh, I better not say this. There's little kids in there. I start saying, you know, you punch them back. I mean, but, and the bottom line is, if, you know, we pick the fight with God, we're the ones that make the decision. And so, in all of His mercy and His grace, God decides... I'm going to end this, but I'm going to end it in love and mercy. And then, like I said a minute ago, I'm going to give them access to everything that I have. He's patient. And he watches just for that moment that he knocks us to our knees. And though it's a very painful experience when God knocks us down, it's the greatest thing that can ever happen to you. I have had, I've experienced, there's been many times in my life where I've fought against God, and he was patient, and he dealt me a blow, knocked me on my knees uh, to where I could think clearly again and and, and turn to him and get everything fixed. And it was a very, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I've been a pastor long enough to see it happen in many, many, many people's lives. See, we have a tendency 
We want to get people out of their problems as fast as possible. And sometimes God's saying, I don't want you to get them out of their problem. I've just knocked them down. Okay? Don't come pick them up before they're ready to surrender to me, or I'm going to have to knock them down again. You get my drift here. It's all in God's mercy. But God says, hey, if you want to fight, I'll fight. If it will bring you to your knees, if I can get you to a place where you'll surrender and I can give you my love, I don't care to give you a black eye first. Right? <laughs> God said, we'll, we'll do this thing. Pharaoh fought against God, lost everything, lost his kingdom. Can you imagine what Egypt must have looked like whenever the Israelites left? Imagine what it looked like. Dead, stinking frogs everywhere. Flies just piled by the locusts, piled by the, uh, you know, by, the, by the mountain. Everybody's cattle, livestock's all dead and decayed. That, play, that land stunk. Dead bodies, people who have just died. and uh, It was the most powerful, wealthy, prosperous nation on the planet until it decided to fight against God and he just demolished it. He lost everything, even his firstborn son. What about, what about Nebuchadnezzar? I want you to turn back, turn to the right and then go to Daniel chapter 4. Let's take a look at him this morning. Let's see what happened to him when he fought against God. So if none of the stories before got you, pay close attention to this one. You don't want to, ha- you don't want to happen to you what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse uh, 28. Now Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't know, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Babylon was a mighty nation that in that day was literally conquering. I mean, he was on a conquer the world trip like you ain't never seen before, and he was getting it done. He was literally conquering the entire known world, and he conquered Israel. So he was in control of the Israelites, and and Nebuchadnezzar was not exactly what you'd call a Sunday school boy, right? He was a ruthless, very ruthless and mean-hearted man, prideful man. But let's see how, how God brought him down. Daniel 4, verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, he was high on himself. Look what I have done. My majesty, my glory, my kingdom. I have done all this because I am powerful and I am great and there was no God greater than I am. God can't tell me what to do. You know, we wouldn't maybe say that, but we might kind of say that with our actions, right? I'm going to do things my way no matter what God says. But he's all high and mighty, my majesty. But look at verse 31. While the words were still in, his, in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the, king has departed, or the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. All right. You have to picture this. I've got a vivid imagination. It don't take a vivid imagination to picture this in your mind. The dude is standing there and he's gloating about how great he is. And while he's gloating, as he's finishing his statement about how great he is, and even God can't bring me down, God speaks to him and says, hmm, yeah, I can. How cute. You think you can beat me. And God says, you will eat, ox, or eat grass like an ox 
until the time, I like this, until the time that you know that the Most High rules. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to live like a common animal until you cry uncle. And that's exactly what, literally in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar went insane. He literally went mentally insane and they, they tied him to a stake. They put him out to pasture. The guy literally lived like an ox. He was out of his mind. He ate grass like, a, like an ox. His hair, he was out there for so long that his hair grew real long. The Bible says his hair grew as long as eagle's wings. So he's got his long, shaggy hair. His fingernails grew out to where they looked like uh, bird claws. The guy was insane. The most powerful man in the world who held people's lives in his hands is now people pass by and they say, what in the world? That dude's out there eating grass. He looks, he looks like a wild animal. People say, that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar. He just went bonkers. It's out of the blue. He just went crazy. Just, I mean, he snapped just like that. Turns out he was trying to fight against God. And everybody around immediately dropped to their knees and began to pray. I don't know, but that's what I would have done. Oh God, if in any way I'm fighting against you, I'm sorry. But until the moment, there was a moment where Nebuchadnezzar's reason came back to him. In God's, did God have to do that? Did God have to bring his... God could have left him there and let him die like that. But God, in his mercy and in his grace and in his plight to make sure that the world knows he's in control and that you can't fight against him, he lets Nebuchadnezzar get his noggin back, his reason. And he realizes, he looks around, he looks, his fingernails are this long and his hair, and he's, he's got a mouthful of grass. And his reason comes back to him, he's like... What in, the, what in the world is going on here? And in that moment, he was willing to recognize that the Most High rules. <laughs> Amen? That God is in control and I am nothing and I cannot fight against Him. Look, look what he did. Verse 33, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the men and ate grass like an ox, his body wet with the dew of heaven. Till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were as bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand for say to Him what... Have you done? So you notice how his tune changed. Everything before was about I, my, me. And now he's singing you, him, amen, you, him. Everything was about God now. It wasn't about Nebuchadnezzar anymore. And folks, that's why God's willing to fight with us. That's why, we'll, that's why God's willing to fight with us and not just snuff us out. I mean, think about it. God could just, how do you fight it? God just say, I want your breath back. You fall over, you're dead, Right? So, I mean, he could, he could fight and he could win. God's purpose in winning against us in a fight is not to destroy us, it's to bring us to a place where we will now be all about him and not so much all about us. And we're, we're spoiled people, I mean, aren't we? Especially in this country. We're spoiled, we're spoiled people. And even, even within the house of God, we make everything about us. We, and I do too. We're, we're, just, we're horrible. We're, we're, we're just tuned that way. And God is doing everything he can to bring us to a place where we can be more about him 
than about us. John the Baptist came to grips with that, right? I mean, John the Baptist was willing to, to do anything. There was no fight in him at all against God. He, was, he knew what his purpose in life was, and that was to be the forerunner of Christ. His whole purpose in living was to come along and prepare people's hearts for the coming Messiah. And as soon as Messiah came, as soon as Jesus came onto the world scene and people started following Him, He knew it was now time for Him to bow out. People come and they said, aren't you mad? People are are leaving you and following Jesus. And He said, no way, I'm not mad. That's That's why I'm here. He said, He must increase and I must decrease. I'm not going to fight against the Son of God for attention, for man's attention. For popularity? No way. I'm, not, I'm fighting with him here. This is, this is his job. And to the point where he was willing even and went to prison and was beheaded. There was just this, you God, you out front, I'll follow, I'll fight with you. And there was no fight against him. Would to God I could get that way, that we could all get that way. Where, where, what, what, if, what if all of God's people were literally so obedient and tuned into the voice of God that as soon as He laid something on our heart, as soon as He spoke something to us, as soon as He gave us direction, that we would just do it. I mean, with a willing heart, with love, and that there was, what if there was no fight in us against God? What if we fought against the devil like we fought against God? Think about that for just a minute. We don't fight against the devil near as much as we fight against God, truth be known. <laughs> oh, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, remember him, he was fighting against God, trying to get rid of Christianity, snuff it out, get rid of these Christians. And Jesus comes along, and you know the story, Saul is on his way uh, uh, to Damas- Damascus, if I remember correctly. He's on his way there, literally, uh, with one mission, and that is to arrest Christians. And so on his way, he's fighting against God. He's fighting against Christ. And as he's uh, riding along on his high horse, God knocks him off of his high horse. His light, bright light shines. He falls off his horse. He's blind. And Jesus speaks these words to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the pricks? What does he mean? Basically saying this, Saul, Saul, why are you picking a fight with me, man? Well, you want a piece of this? That's basically what God was saying, putting it in our terms. Why are you, why are you fighting against me like this see what happens if i remember correctly it's been a while, i should look this up but if i remember correctly you know whenever they when the team of oxen would be pulling they would have what was called pricks they were sharp objects on the side that would keep that would keep the oxen from kicking against their master and keep kicking against they keep them going in the right direction so obviously if an ox was to kick against the pricks that's gonna it's gonna hurt so they learn to just do what the person with the reins is telling them to do. They learn to quit kicking against the pricks. Well, God ultimately is holding the reins. Christ ultimately was in complete control. And that's the analogy Jesus is using. Why are you kicking against the pricks? You're kicking against God's will. You're fighting against me and you're causing yourself and a whole lot of people a lot of pain. Why don't you just learn to let me take control and you do what I want you to do? Amen? And so Saul, now that he's completely blind, decided, you know, I don't think I can fight against Jesus anymore. Uh, it's like, uncle, right? Ding, ding, fight's over, I surrender. And from that moment forward, Saul was no longer Saul of Tarsus out to destroy the church and snuff out the name of Jesus, fighting against all that was gospel. Now he's Paul, the apostle, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and trying to get as many people saved, trying to fighting with God. Hallelujah. Was it, easy on, was it easy on Paul? Nope. But every time, you know, we're, t- we're talking about a man who was whipped. 
He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. Everywhere he went preaching the gospel, he endured some sort of pain. Physical pain, no doubt. Mental anguish and mental pain. He endured it all. But he endured it because he lived with this mentality, I don't care what man does to me. I don't care. I will fight the fight against man. I just don't ever again want to find myself in the place where I'm fighting against God. Bring it, he says. Bring the stones. Your stones can't hurt me near like God can hurt me. And that's kind of what Jesus said a little bit. He said, uh, you know, don't fear man that can just kill your body. Fear God, which can destroy both body and soul in hell. God is a better fighter than we are. So it's not surprising, like I said, let me wrap this up. It's not surprising when unbelievers fight against God. We see that all the time. In our society, you know, it kind of looks something like this. You you know, uh, university professors and uh, Hollywood actors and directors uh, that are constantly fighting against everything that is good, everything that is gospel, fighting against God, trying to convince people that there is no God, God does not exist, and that anybody who believes in Him is a fool. And so there's plenty of unbelievers fighting against God today. And the truth of the matter is, uh, those people will lose. And though it seems as though they're gaining ground in the world around us and, and more people are following their atheistic views or whatever, in the end, they lose, right? They lose in this life too. But in the end, those people who are fighting against God will one day bow their knee to Him. The, the, the professors who are teaching young people that God doesn't exist will, will sit there on their knees with them confessing, I was wrong, He is God. God's going to win because God doesn't just hold control over this life. He holds control over the next one. Amen? Every knee is going to bow. God, in fact, God says this. He said, I'm going to laugh at their calamity. Right? God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour out mercy. I am going to extend a hand of forgiveness. He did it all throughout Scripture with the nation of Israel. Please repent. Please come back. You know, there's going to be consequences if you don't, but he gives them all of this time of mercy. But he says, there's going to come a time, I'm going to draw a line in the sand, we're going to throw down, and then I'm going to laugh at their calamity because they're rejected. And at that day, all even today's society, trying so hard to fight against God and snuff him out of our society, get him out of the courtrooms, get him out of the classrooms, get him out of the homes, get him, just get God out of the way. There's a, you know, a group now, of course we've known about the ACLU for years, but there's, you know, other groups called uh, Freedom from Religion. How many of you heard about them here recently? Freedom from Religion trying to get rid of crosses and the nativity scenes. They're they're doing everything they can to fight against God, but one day they're going to lose. And God will laugh at their calamity. What's more surprising probably, and we can all relate, is just the fact that uh, when we find us as believers fighting against God, and the reason why that is surprising really is because we believe in Him. Right? I mean, it's not too hard to figure out why if you don't believe in God, well, of course, it's easy to fight against Him, but we believe in Him, yet we fight against Him. We know We know His power. We've seen it at work in our life, have we not? We know and we understand the power of God and we recognize our lack of power. Yet we still fight against Him. It's surprising. It doesn't make much sense. What's surprising? People who fight against God. You know, I should make, I could make a Geico commercial out of this. Um, We as believers, we know that nobody's ever beat God. 
Scripturally, historically, nobody's ever won against him. So it's kind of surprising that we would ever fight against him. We know that every breath is under his command. We know that there's consequences to people who fight against him. We know. You can't really hold it against people who don't know, but people who know. I mean, are you more aggravated with your, your children when they do something wrong that you, you recognize, well, they really wouldn't have known that was wrong? Or when they do something that's wrong that you've told them 27,000 times is wrong, right? Like running out of gas in the middle of the night, something like that, after, after your dad. I got permission. I'm not, I don't throw my kids under the bus too awful much until I get the permission. Anyway, the bottom line is when we know and we do it anyway, it's, it's worse. It's more surprising that, that believers, that we as God's people uh, would disobey God. But we know where it all comes from. Right? I mean, who was the first person? Who was the first one to ever fight against God? Even, even before Adam. Satan. Satan fought against God. Jesus said, I watched Satan fall from heaven as lightning. I watched his pride get the better of him. I watched him fight against God and get his tail whipped. And Satan has been fighting against God ever since. And he does so through us. Amen? If we are, I mean, it's pretty simple. If we're being obedient to God, then we are operating in the Spirit of God. If we're fighting against God, we're operating in a different spirit. Satan is the one that always stirs our heart to fight against God, to lie to us. Oh, you don't want to do that, or you don't want to do this. That, that, it all comes, we have to recognize where those thoughts come from. Satan is always lost against God. He's losing now, even though it may appear that sin and Satan is winning. I assure you, he is not. Satan is losing now, and Satan will always lose, and he will lose in the end. I read where he's cast into the lake of fire with everybody he deceived. Amen? Amen. So the question is, are you fighting against God right now? In what way are you fighting against God? My, my suggestion to you this morning is to surrender. Stop fighting. It's just simple. It's not some big religious hoo-ha that you have to go through. Just stop fighting God. I mean, God is drawing you. Let me talk to you this morning if you're not saved, if you've never been saved this morning. What I mean by that is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, putting your trust, trust in Him, repenting of your sins, and recognizing that Jesus died on the cross for you and surrendering your entire life to Him. That's what it means to be saved. Through faith, not, not by works, not by actions, nothing that you do, not through baptism, not through communion, not through that, just through your, you're putting your faith in the love and the grace of God, and if you've never been saved this morning and you're finding yourself fighting against Him, just know today you can't win. Wouldn't it be better to just surrender to the Lord and stop fighting against Him and allow Him to start fighting for you? I'll tell you something, God will fight for you. You think that this is your problem? Okay, well, I've got this going on in my life and this is my problem. No, it's not. I've got this going on, this person's come against me, and that's my problem, that's not your problem. None of that stuff is, is the problem. Sin, our sin, is our problem. And when we surrender that sin to God, we stop fighting against Him, we find that God will then begin to fight for us, and we find some of these other problems to kind of start taking care of themselves. Most of time because it's not really a problem, and you just see that after you've got spiritual eyes. Amen? God's not fighting us so much as He's just kind of waiting for us to wear down. <laughs> really? You know, you take, you know, you've seen maybe on a cartoon or TV or something, some little short guy, he's trying to fight this great big guy, and the big guy just kind of holds his hand on top of the little guy's head, 
And the little guy's going like this. You know, he's, he's fighting. He's, he can't get any closer. He can't whip them, but he's swinging like this. And the, and the big guy's just kind of holding him like that, waiting for him to wear down. That's what God's doing. We can't fight against it. We can't win. God's just holding us. We're fighting. You're fighting. We're, maybe you're a Christian. You're struggling with this or that or something else. You're upset. I mean, whatever the case. In whatever way you're fighting, fighting against God, it's different for everybody. And you just feel yourself wearing down. Just stop. Just stop. Stop fighting against God. He's just being patient. When you get tired of it, he'll take his hand off. He'll open his arms to you. He'll forgive you. He'll change you. And he'll turn you around and say, now let's go fight those battles. Amen.